there in your outline in your bulletin and you can follow along and there will also be some slides up there overhead. You can follow along with those as well. As we begin this in-depth study into the parables of Christ in Matthew 13, we've learned that parables were given by the Lord uh, to describe the character of his kingdom, specifically between the time of his rejection and the time of his return. And these parables describe really the age we live in right now, the church age. Uh, It's an age that was... A mystery in the Old Testament. They, they kind of overlooked this. They didn't really see this coming. And it's called the uh, mystery of the mystery age or the, the mystery of the kingdom, the mystery form of the kingdom. Uh, Christ is the king. His kingdom is here now, but it's in the form of the, the kingdom that was not seen in the Old Testament. And remember, we talked about God's kingdom before. We talked about the universal kingdom from eternity past to eternity future. And out of that universal kingdom, there's also a mediated kingdom. And that mediated kingdom is from the time of Christ's incarnation, basically his rejection to his return. And within that, there's what we call the church age, the time we live in right now. And so you can imagine when Christ came the first time and everybody rejected him, they basically hung him on a cross and killed him. The logical question would be, well, what happened? If he was the king and he was supposed to bring a kingdom, what happens now? Well, that's the question that Christ answers in Matthew 13. Our Lord answers that question in a series of seven parables. And it clearly explains to us the very time in which we live even now. We also learned that the Lord was able to take the natural things of the the world, the things that surrounded the people They lived in an agrarian society back then. So here he's talking about a sower. But you've seen where he's talked about the water and he's talked about uh, earthly things to um, communicate a spiritual truth. And that's exactly what a parable is. A parable is taking an earthly story and laying it alongside of a spiritual truth so you can clearly understand the spiritual truth that's trying to be communicated. And all of these parables in Matthew 13 are filled with Profound truth. But a parable is different than an allegory. In a parable, there's only one main thought that's being presented. So you don't go through a parable and pick apart everything and say, well, this must mean this, this must mean that, and this must mean this. But there is an overwhelming kind of understanding of the parable, and you have to understand that, and we're going to look at the parable of the sower today. But they're, they're very full and rich of meaning. And, and best of all, this relates exactly to us today in the age in which we find ourselves living in the church. And so we've seen in Matthew 13 so far, we've seen the place where Christ is teaching. He left the house and he went out on the sea and he's in a boat and he sat down. And uh, someone pointed out that that's the natural uh, position of a rabbi when he teaches. And so either he sat down because of that or he sat down because it's not wise to stand up in a boat, especially those little rickety boats they have over there in the Sea of Galilee with the waves lapping up against whichever reason he sat down. And we also saw the plan in verse 3 that he was going to speak in parables. And the purpose of that was to reveal and to conceal. He wanted to reveal certain mysteries to certain people, his disciples, those who followed him, but he also wanted to conceal certain things from the people who weren't following him. And then we saw the promise last week in verse 
35. Well, today we want to look at actually the parable itself, the first parable. And so we want to look at the instruction of this parable in verses 3 to 9. And I just want to read it so it's fresh in our hearing. It says in verse 3 of Matthew 13, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seed, fell, and, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. And the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell on thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now, what we want to understand here is what this parable is kind of talking about. What's the instruction that we can get from this parable? So we want to look at the explanation. First of all, you notice there, he says in verse 3, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. Now remember, they lived in an agrarian society. They lived, you know, basically in a farming community, you might say. I mean, that's a lot of people were very, very comfortable with illustrations relating to uh, farming and sowing seed. And so his crowd clearly understood the process of sowing seed. Maybe some of us here never grew up on a farm or whatever, and they're like, what is he talking about here, sowing seed? What is that? Well, it was familiar to his hearers at the time. But let's just explain it so we uh, definitely understand. Even while he was sharing this parable, as he's sitting in this boat and the multitudes are up on the hillside, you could probably look out onto the horizon and see a field. And you might even see a sower. Maybe that's what happened. Jesus looked out and, hey, you know, a sower went out to to sow seed. And maybe that illustration was a living illustration right there before their eyes. Well, when sowing seed, the sower would put a bag over their shoulder, and the bag would hold the seed, and it would have an opening in in the front of it. And he'd walk through the furrows of the field that had been prepared properly. And he'd walk down the furrow and he'd take his hand and he'd reach in and depending on his left or right hand or whatever, and he'd sow the seed. He'd broadcast the seed. He'd throw the seed out into the fertile ground. And that was so that they could obviously have a crop. That's what that original word means. It means to broadcast. You're throwing seed. You're scattering seed. And they would scatter them there in the furrow as he walked along. And he would basically get to the end and he'd turn around and he'd walk back the other furrow. And he'd continue until the whole field was sowed with seed. That's how they would practice that. That's how they would plant their crops back in that time. And so Jesus indicates that as the sower throws the seed, if you look at the story... There's basically four kinds of soil that this seed falls on. Four kinds of soil. The first one is the wayside soil. He says in verse 4, And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds and fowls came and devoured them. Now, back in those days, literally, the land of Israel was just a patchwork of fields. Because they lived in a... It's kind of like if you went back to Pennsylvania out in the country, you'd see a patchwork of fields. They're all kind of connected. Sometimes they have a row of trees in between them. Sometimes they just have a path. 
Well, back there in Israel, they basically just had open fields and the paths were, or the fields were divided by paths. And these paths were basically there so the farmer could get out to the field, first of all, and do his work, and then he could go back home. But they were also used by people who would travel. So you would go out and say you're going from one town to the other. Well, you know, they didn't have like a freeway or whatever. So you would just, you know, get on these little paths and make your way over to the other person's house or the other person's farm or the other city, whatever. They just, it was a narrow strip of land that was alongside of the field, probably about three feet wide. And they were used by people. Even in Matthew chapter 12, remember, when they were accused of, of working on the Sabbath, the, the Lord Christ and his disciples, they were walking through what? It says fields of grain. Remember, they picked the, the grain. They were walking on these little paths. There weren't any fences or walls or anything like that. And so this is what the Lord has in mind when he talks about these wayside this wayside soil, it's soil alongside of the field, and it's been packed down. I remember growing up, we had a, a barn up, up on our property, and it was, you know, maybe a sixteenth of a mile, you know, a thousand feet or whatever, up the, the hill. And I remember sometimes what we would do is, uh, environmentalists would, would turn over in, in the grave if they heard what we did. But, you know, this was just a dirt little path. A road, basically. We'd tra- tractors and stuff, cars sometimes, uh, old cars we'd take up there and run around this racetrack we had. But this path, to keep the dust down and everything, after we'd change the oil in a car, we would take this old oil and we'd take it up and we'd dump it on the road. Just dump it right on the ground because it would keep the stuff packed down. And it was almost like asphalt after a while. Now, day, today you'd probably be thrown in jail if you did that. But that's what we used to do. Well, that's the idea here. This, this area that this seed is falling on, it's soil, there's soil there, but it's so packed down that it's hard. It's almost impenetrable. And what's it say happens is basically that after the is this farmer was sowing the seed, some of them, you know, he didn't get them all right in the row. Some of them would go out onto this path, And probably after the farmer made his way past that section, the birds would swoop down and they would eat those seeds that fell on the path. That's what it says would happen here. Luke chapter 8 verse 5 says that what the birds didn't eat, it says that people would trample them under their feet. And so we know that these were paths that were used by people. So some seed fell on that. That's the first kind of soil. The wayside soil. Secondly, in verses 5 and 6, it says, Some fell upon stony places. Stony places. Where it didn't have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. Luke adds something a little more to that. In in chapter 8, verse 6, it says, This kind of soil, this stony soil, lacked moisture. It lacked moisture. Now, you might say, well, Jesus must be talking here about a soil with a bunch of rocks in it. That's what he must be talking about. That's not what he's talking about. Because what farmer, with a good conscience and a hard work ethic, would go out to his furrow and prepare it for seed that he probably bought or kept over from the last harvest, and why would he not prepare the soil. So 
you know, he would take all these rocks out. That's part of furrowing the soil. That's part of kind of fertilizing or digging it up and, and sorting all that stuff out so you had a good base. He obviously would do that. So he's not talking about a bunch of soil with just rocks in it. Rather, he's talking about maybe a place in the field where over in those areas of the country, they have kind of a strains of, of limestone that run very close to the surface of the dirt. And from the top, it looks fine. Guys, how many times have you been in the backyard and your wife or family member or somebody says, hey, just go out and plant this thing. It'd just take a second. Just go out and plant this little bush. It'd just take you two seconds. And you get out there and you get your shovel and, you know, poof, ah. And you hit a rock or you hit a boulder or you hit something right under the surface. It looks like it's fine, but it's not. There's something under there that's preventing you from digging a hole. Well, that's the kind of soil that we're talking about here. There is a thin layer of soil there. It's even fertile soil. But it says there that has no deepness. There's no depth to it. And sometimes the farmers were unaware even where these places were. And so the seed landed on that hard rock and it would germinate, try to germinate, and it would grow its roots downward because there's a little bit of soil there, but there was no real place for the roots to go. So instead of going down, initially those seeds that landed on that kind of soil, boy, they just skyrocketed. Because the other seeds that were on good soil, they were growing up and down. But the ones on this particular Soil, the rocky soil, they couldn't go down, so they just started springing up. And initially, you would look at a bunch of furrows, and you'd see one furrow that's, boy, they're just growing much more than the other ones. But the reason was, is because they were on rocky soil. They were on soil that was right under the surface. There was a layer of rock, and it couldn't penetrate. So instead of going down, they just went up. And the Bible says here, because they could only go up. They had no roots. And eventually they died when the sun came out because they had no depth to the roots. And their, the bedrock there would hinder them from finding any moisture. That's the second kind. Well, the third kind of soil, it says in verse 7, is soil filled with weeds. It says, Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. Initially, this weedy soil, it looked good. It's deep, it's rich, it's cultivated, it looks ready for planting. I mean, that's what a farmer would do. He wouldn't put seeds necessarily, purposely, in a furrow that wasn't prepared properly. But after the seeds are sown, they begin to germinate, and weeds also begin to grow up with these seeds. And the weeds then, it says there in the scriptures, choke the life out of that grain, that seed that was planted initially. Because weeds were natural to that soil. You know, weeds are at home in your garden. You might say, well, not for very long, but you know what? They are. They're at home. You don't have to plant weeds. Al's not here today, but Al will tell you how much he dislikes weeds, Al Swanson. I mean, I've seen him go through front yard after front yard in front of his house. I mean, sometimes he's out there with Roundup and he just kills the whole thing. Starts over because of a little patch of weeds. 
He's just fixated on them. He doesn't plant them. They just happen to grow there. Matter of fact, he's just had a brand new front yard put in, brand new sod. I think it was last fall. He's already, I'm seeing little patches here and there. You know, you can't fight the weeds. They're going to be there. Weeds are natural to soil. Because of that, the grain has to be cultivated. Weeds eventually choke the grain and send out their leaves so that they take up the sun and the moisture and all the nutrients out of the soil, and the little seed ends up dying. And then the last soil there is in verse 8. It says, but other seeds fell into good ground. Good ground. And it brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. See, the soil here is soft, deep, it's clean. It's soft, unlike the wayside soil that's been packed down because people have been walking on it. It's deep, unlike the stony limestone ground. And it's clean, the Bible says unlike the weed-infested soil. See, it's on that ground that the Bible says, Jesus is communicating here, that's the ground where this seed is going to burst to life and it's going to bring forth a tremendous harvest. Sometimes it says 100-fold, sometimes 60-fold, sometimes 30-fold. You say, well, what's that talking about? Well, you have to understand, if you read books that deal with the historical nature and agricultural nature of this land in this time, the average return on a crop was less than eightfold. That was average. All of a sudden, Jesus comes along with a story saying, well, if this seed falls on good ground, you're going to have a crop yield hundredfold, or sixtyfold, or thirtyfold. That was unheard of in those days. A good, tr- good crop would be, you know, average, less than eightfold. So he's talking about a flourishing crop here. And so the parable is very simple. The instruction here of the parable is very simple. This man goes out and he throws seed, and this seed falls into four kinds of soil. Some on the hard path where it's never going to germinate. They're either eaten by the the birds or, or just trampled underfoot. Some seeds fall into the rocky soil and they begin to grow, but growth is all upward. There's no way for them to go down below the limestone rock there, and eventually the sun comes out, it scorches them, and they can't find moisture, so they die. Some fall on the weedy ground, the Bible says, but they also become kind of strangled by these weeds that grow up with them, and they've already, weeds are already there, and uh, it's their natural place to live, and so they end up choking out those seeds, and last, the seeds fall onto good ground, this good, clean, deep, rich soil, and it produces a tremendous harvest. Well, look at what he says in verse 9. It's a pretty simple story. Verse 9, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. In other words, what he's saying is, if you understand this, if you understand what I'm saying to you, there's an important message here for you. If you understand it, who is the one who has ears? Who is the one who can hear? Well, we looked at verses 10 and 17, and that explained to us that the only people who can understand these parables are those who believe in the king, those who are redeemed, those who are part of the kingdom. If you're in the kingdom, the king promises to explain to you the meaning of what he says. He's going to reveal it to you. Remember we said a parable 
was he was taught in parables. The purpose of it was so he could reveal certain things to some people and conceal certain things from others. I mean, when you become a Christian, you don't automatically get instant wisdom in everything, right? I mean, you don't understand all spiritual truth as soon as you've got the Holy Spirit and everything, but you don't understand everything. It takes a process of time, sanctification, you growing more like Christ. He's teaching you through his word. Via the Holy Spirit, when you read the Word, you're getting nurtured, you're growing in your faith. That's the promise that God will do in your heart. The people who can't understand Jesus are those, and he says here, with hard hearts and deaf ears. Look at verses 14 and 15, and we read this last week, but we'll just see it. He's quoting Isaiah. And he says, hearing you will hear... And shall not understand. It's not that they're physically deaf, but they're spiritually deaf. And seeing you will see, but you're not going to perceive what you're seeing. Then he says this in verse 15. For the hearts of this people have grown what? Dull. Have grown dull. You ever try to cut anything with something that's dull? Frustrating. It says their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes have been closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. See, the people who rejected Jesus are not going to be able to understand what in the world he's talking about. It's only for those who believe in Christ who are going to get it. They're the ones that are going to understand That's why he says in verse 16, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, your ears, for they hear. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples at that point. He tells the parable to everybody. Parables conceal from those who don't believe, and they reveal to those who do believe. In Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 10 to 20, Jesus was asked by his disciples the meaning of this parable. Of the sower and the seed. And he explained it to them, but he did it apart from the multitude. Because he didn't want them to understand it. So Jesus says, you're able to understand, you're able to hear what I say. And then in verse 18, back Matthew chapter 13, verse 18. He begins to explain. He begins to interpret for his Folks there, the meaning of this parable. Well, what's the interpretation of this parable? Look at what it says in verse 18. It tells us very clearly. It says, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. Hear the parable of the sower. Who is the sower? The sower is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's none other than Christ. Remember, this is a a physical, earthly story, but it's presenting a spiritual truth. And if you doubt that, turn over to verse 37 of the same chapter in Matthew. If you say, well, how do you know he... Where does it say that? I I don't see it there. Look at verse 37, Matthew 13. It says, he answered, Christ answered them. And he said, he who sows the good seed is the what? Son of man. So the sower is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is the original sower. He is the one who puts 
First, the seed in the soil. And you say, well, what is the seed? Look at verse 19. It says in verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, the word of the kingdom, Mark 4.14 says, the sower soweth the what? The word. What is the seed? The seed is the word of God. The seed is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Anyone who sows what Jesus first sowed is also a sower. So we can apply this to ourselves, but in the context, Christ is really talking about himself. He's talking about, look, I'm the sower and I'm going out into into the field and I'm sowing the gospel. The good news of the gospel. Those who love Christ will follow suit. Well, in 19, it also talks about the seed. Verse 19 tells us that the seed is the word of the kingdom. It's God's revelation. In Luke 8, 11, a parallel passage, it says the seed is the word of God. Okay, over and over we see that. The gospel message is about the king and his kingdom. That's the whole purpose of the message. Side note here, do you know that seeds can't be created? You can't create seeds. You've got to get them from a plant, just like you can't create life. I mean, they can do some pretty incredible things with embryonic deal and all that in science, but they can't create life. See, if we didn't have any seeds, we could never grow anything. We're dependent on what grows and produces more seeds because God originally created seeds and seeds reproduce themselves. And the same is truth about the seed of the Word of God. See, some people think that they have to go out and create their own message. That's not what we're to do. The Lord does not call us to create our own message. God says, you know what? You take that which has already been created by me, the word of God that's already been spoken by me, and you sow that, and you sow it again and again and again. We're not to produce a new supply of information to people. We're to build upon the revelation of the word of God. That's why we believe here in this church it's so important to take the scripture and to expound the scripture. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. We want to find out what the words of Christ say, what the word of God says. And then we want to apply that first to the context in which we find it and then also to our own lives. We're utterly dependent upon the divine revelation. As much as we are dependent on God creating seeds in the first place that reproduce themselves and bring us fruit to eat each and every day. So the parable is about preaching the gospel, the word about the king and his kingdom. It's telling men that Jesus is the king and what he is like and and what he's going to bring about as far as an earthly kingdom and what the kingdom will be like. That's what he's sharing with us. All those things involve preaching. They involve sowing. Well, the sower, the seed, now the soils in verse Verses 19 to 23. And I want us to look at the the condition of the soil. That's what we want to look at. 
See, the main point of this parable, it's going to show how men respond to the gospel during this age. Because remember, Christ came, he was going to bring his kingdom, they rejected him as king, therefore they rejected his kingdom. He went back to heaven. His kingdom still goes on in a mediated form here on earth through the church because the Holy Spirit reigns and rules in us. And so we're kind of mediating God's kingdom here on earth until he returns. And when he returns, he's going to come back and they're going to acknowledge him as as king at that point. And then he's going to set up his earthly kingdom for a thousand years. And that us who are part of the church, who have trusted Christ, will come back and we will be part of that kingdom here on earth. The Bible speaks of that. Incredible time. But what he's showing is, you know what? Since they rejected me and I went back to heaven, disciples, he's not talking to the multitudes, he's talking to the disciples. And he's saying, you know what? Your job is to go out and you continue to sow the seed. And as you sow this seed, I want you to understand that there's different kinds of, of the condition that the soil is in when, it, when the seed is going to fall. All the soils are basically the same. They're made up of the same stuff. The only difference is whether the dirt is hard and packed down and hasn't been prepared, or the, the rock is underneath it, or it has weeds in it. But all the soil is basically the same. See, the issue is not the soil, beloved, It's the condition of the soil. And we have to remember that when we're out there sowing the seed. And that truth that that is there is that all men could, all men could receive that seed. All soil could receive the seed if it was broken up and cleared of all the weeds. So the key to the parable here of the sower and the seed is that the response that a person has to the gospel, it depends upon the condition of that person's heart. That's what it depends on. It doesn't depend on the sower. It doesn't depend on the seed. It depends on the condition of the soil. You have the same sower sowing seed in the parable. You have him sowing the same seed in the parable. The only difference is the condition. He's sowing it onto the same kind of soil. It's just how that soil has been prepared. What's the condition of the soil? We know that the soil refers to the heart because it says in verse 19, when anyone heareth the word of God and understands it not, then comes the wicked one and catches away that which was sown where? In his heart. So that's the clear understanding of the soil. The condition of the heart determines how receptive a person will be to the gospel. When the disciples saw that Jesus was rejected, they rejected him, they rejected his message, they rejected his kingdom, they looked at each other and looked at the Lord and said, Lord, what's going to happen now? You've been blasphemed, you've been mocked, You've been basically equated to Satan himself, and the kingdom can't come. What's going to happen now? And using the parable of the sower and the seed, Jesus uses this illustration. And he says, I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen now. It's your job to go out and you sow the seed just like I've been sowing the seed, which is the word of God. 
You're going to preach the same message that I preached. Don't change anything. Preach about the king and the kingdom. Then he begins to talk about different soils in this parable. And the reason he does that is for encouragement. Are you getting where this would be a little bit of an encouragement to the apostles? In other words, there's going to be wayside soil, folks. When you go out and you sow the word of God, there's going to be wayside soil. There's going to be stony soil. There's going to be soil that's filled with weeds. But you've also got to know that there's going to be soil that that seed's going to land on, and you're going to see sometimes the potential of a hundred, sixty, thirty-fold return. I don't know about you, but that should get you a little bit excited. The parable is intended to help the apostles approach to the ministry that Jesus really is handing off to them. And he wants to get them excited. He wants to have them with great anticipation wait on what God will do to produce results as they are faithful to sow the seed. Before we look at the four different kinds of soil, there's one thing you have to remember. Salvation is manifested by what? By fruit. Not foliage. Not foliage. Salvation is manifested by fruit. Not foliage. You can look at a tree full of leaves, but unless it has any fruit on it, you may not know exactly what kind of tree that is. That's very important to understand. Because if you don't understand that, this parable can become a little confusing. Keep in mind, too, that those four kinds of responses are the same in our day. Let's look at the first one, the wayside hearer, in verse 19. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches it away. Snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. In other words, the seed, the seed fell on this, this little path next to the field, and it couldn't penetrate the ground, and the birds were hovering over, and as soon as the, the sower left that area, boy, they swooped right down and, and ate those, or, or they were trampled underfoot, whatever was left that the birds didn't get. The illustration is a man who is hard-hearted. The Old Testament would call this kind of a man stiff-necked. He's unresponsive. He's indifferent even. The gospel message just hits him and bounces off for whatever reason. And Satan, represented by the the birds here, comes and snatches that seed away that was sown. And that confirms what the Lord said said earlier in verse 12, whoever has not from him, it shall be taken even what he has. See, this man's heart has been so pounded down by the mixed multitudes of sins in his life that there's no sensitivity left at all. Just pure indifference. His heart knows no repentance, no sorrow, no guilt. It's never been broken up. It's never been furrowed. It's never been softened by conviction. Proverbs has a lot to say about this kind of man. It says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that he despises wisdom. It also says in Proverbs 15, 5, that he hates instruction. 27, 22 says that he's stiff-necked and hard-hearted. 
Proverbs 23.9 says that he will not listen. And ultimately, in Psalm 14.1, it says that in his heart he says there is no God. That's how hard-hearted this person is. He doesn't want to be bothered with the message of the gospel. And it's just kind of, leave me alone. We've all met people like that. We've all dealt with people like that. We throw the seed, and it just bounces off. And Satan scurries along and snatches it up. When the New Testament, it gives us another light into these men. And it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, says, but even in verse 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And here's how it describes those who are perishing. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, whose minds the God of this age, who is who? Satan, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. In other words, when someone does not respond to the gospel, Satan blinds that person to the true value of the gospel. And there's a lot of different ways that Satan can blind men and women and people from the gospel. He can put out false teachers. False teachers tell people not to believe what they've heard. Another way is that they make men fearful. Well, if I commit to Christ, you know, I'll be ridiculed by my friends at work. I'll be, you know, they're, they're, they're afraid of their reputation. Maybe they become a religious fanatic, whatever it might be. There's a fear there. Sometimes Satan even uses pride in the heart of someone. People don't want to admit that they have a need for a Savior. They think they got it all together. Sometimes Satan will use doubt. He'll use prejudice. He'll use stubbornness. He'll use a love for sin even pro- procrastination. Whatever it takes, Satan wants to come and snatch that seed as it's sown. Because he wants that person to forget the message that they've heard. I want to encourage you here this morning to examine your heart. Look at your own life and see if you're one of many people like that. Examine your heart and see if you're that dry hard road on the edge of the field. Maybe you're on the fringes of religion. But sins have just pounded down the dirt of your heart until it's utterly unproductive and unresponsive to God. See, Jesus told us to expect that. There are going to be people who are very close to the truth and yet they're going to remain shut. The wayside here. Secondly, he says, speaks of the, the stony here in verses 20 and 21. Not the stoned here, the stony here. Let's get that right. Verses 20 to 21. He says, But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately, what? Receives it with joy. See, this is a person that hears the word of God and immediately just is overjoyed. There isn't a lot maybe thought going on there, but there's a quick response. It's this big emotional response, instant excitement. Doesn't necessarily count the cost of following Christ. Doesn't maybe even understand the significance of the, of the, uh, the gospel itself. 
there's a good feeling within this person and they have a lot of joy because they found something they didn't see before. And maybe they even seem to be really catching on. They maybe even seem to be really growing. But unfortunately, it's all external. Because there hasn't been any true repentance. There hasn't been any true brokenness over sin in their life. And as indicated by the bedrock of resistance still under that soft soil. There's a lot of people like that today in our churches. They never deal with the real issues. They just kind of jump on the Jesus bandwagon. It looks so good. I mean, who wouldn't want this? And sometimes it's our own fault as Christians as we go out and share the gospel. What are we sharing is the gospel. Jesus wants you healthy, happy, and wise. What, what are we sharing with people? Those kind of people, too, initially look like they're growing faster than anybody else. They appear to have this real joy and real tears. But you know what? Three months later, they're gone. Perhaps they said they were Christians. They're gone. They may have been trying to deal with a deep problem and reached out to Christianity because they thought, what else? And they wanted an instant solution. And they thought, well, now i got God on my side. Man, I'm just going to be happy and, hey, everything's going to work out. And they missed that promise of Christ that he promised believers, followers of him, trials and tribulations in this life. Probably were recipients of inadequate evangelism. They were told that everything was going to be wonderful, happy, joyful. If they just accepted Jesus, just raise your hand, just walk the aisle, do whatever it takes. See, but the soil underneath was never really plowed up with the conviction of their own sin. In a way, they're like the man in Matthew 7 who built his house on the what? On the sand. He had a house. It didn't last too long, though. That's the problem. The religious structure is there, but there's nothing underneath. It's all superficial. And when you look at the field of growing grain, you notice that those people stick out more than anything because they're usually taller than everybody else because they seem so real. However, when you come back to the heat of the day and the heat of the summer, when the moisture is very limited, what do you find? Those are the people that are dead. Those are the people that are no longer around. Verse 21, it explains the adversity that comes. He has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation and what? Persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Immediately he stumbles. The person has never been redeemed. They've never really been committed to Christ. They've never really been a genuine believer. And it comes out when they face tribulation and persecution. He faces suffering because he appears to be long to Christ. See, these are people who leave the church with maybe even the message of the gospel, but there's no regenerate heart inside. And they're all excited about sharing everything with everybody about Christ. But because they haven't truly been broken over their own sin when they feel rejection from family and friends and co-workers, and the persecution and the tribulations come, well, they look at the whole Jesus thing and go, this isn't working. What's next? 
And they just move on to something else because there was no attachment there. There was no life there. This kind of person feels overwhelmed by those who want to, because they see that, boy, they made a response to Christ. They look like they're growing. They want to get them plugged into Bible studies and fellowship groups and prayer times. And that kind of person is like, no, 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 no. (laughs) They're nervous about that kind of stuff. Because there's no root in that person. They feel overwhelmed. You know, sometimes when we pray with people, when they come to Christ, I don't know about you, but I think, you know what, it's just that kind of person. Somebody comes to you, and, oh, you know, I want to I come to Christ. Oh, man, I want to repent of my sin. And they go through the whole thing. I don't care how sincere they are, beloved. This always haunts me. Right? Is this a stony responder? Is this a stony hearer? Is this person going to be around in three years, in three weeks, in three months? Because I know I've prayed with people to come to Christ. I don't see them. Matter of fact, they're, they're, they're living totally the opposite of what Christ says now. Baptized people heard their testimonies. Man, incredible testimonies. They're not here. They're gone. Sprung up for a little while, now it's gone. There may have not been a sense of brokenness in counting the cost of following Christ as we're ta- talked about in Matthew 16, 24. William Arnott said this in 1896. He was talking about the parables. And he said this, If the law of God has never rent the stony heart and made it contrite, that is, bruised it small. You may, by receiving the gospel on some temporary, superficial softness of nature, obtain your religion more easily and quickly than others who have been more deeply exercised, but you may not retain it. He that endureth to the end shall be saved, but he that fails in the middle shall not. That is so true. That is so true. 2 Timothy 3.12 says that all those who live godly in this present age shall what? Shall suffer persecution. You know it's coming. We're to expect it. And these are people that when the persecution comes, when the pressure comes, they leave. It says there in verse 21 that he is offended. He stumbles is is the word in my translation. It means that he's trapped, he's caught by persecution, and he's going to fall. So watch out for those converts that are all smiles and happy and cheers and doing all that. Who maybe lack remorse and conviction of their sin as we talked about when we went through the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. We are to watch for that superficial kind of response to the gospel. Because some people, sometimes people make a profession to become a Christian. And you know what? As a result of their profession, we just immediately take them and we lift them up and we exalt them. Oh, boy, so-and-so got to say, I can't believe this, you know. 
We throw them right into leadership. We throw them right into some role in ministry thinking, well, they got saved. Best thing we could do is wait, wait, wait. See what happens. Because trouble and persecution are very important to the kingdom of God. First of all, trouble and persecution will make false believers fall away from the church. That's why in some countries where the churches are actually persecuted, the church is actually thriving. They can't find rooms big enough to put people. But because of the government or whatever issues at hand, they're not free to gather in public like we are. They feel that sense of persecution. Well, you know what? If you're closed off in some room and if the government finds you worshiping Christ, they'll kill you or send you in prison. Don't you think that that's going to kind of weed out some of the false believers? Secondly, trouble and persecution will strengthen true believers. 1 Peter 5.10 tells us that after we had suffered, the Lord will make us perfect. He'll make us mature. We should desire, actually, trouble and persecution because they discourage false believers and they strengthen true believers. See, if your confession of Christ does not come from a deep inner conviction of your sin, does not include a desire for the Lord to purify and lead you, it doesn't involve self-sacrifice and a willingness to suffer for His sake, then it has no root. It will only be a matter of time before the persecution comes along And you'll fall away. You won't endure the persecution because you're not willing to take up the cross and follow him. If you don't take up the cross, you're not worthy to be his disciple. That's what the Bible says. It's a hard message, but that's what it says. If you've got a stony heart, you know what? The good news is is only God can break that heart. Only God can break it. And you need to pray and you need to ask God to do for you what he promised to do. Even for Isaiah in Ezekiel 36, 26, here's what he told Isaiah, I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. That's what needs to happen. Only God is the divine surgeon that can do that. The stony here. Thirdly, we see the weedy here in verse 22. He also receives seed among the thorns. As he that hears the word and the cares of this age and the deceitful of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Once again, unfruitful. Fruitfulness is a sign of salvation. This person is preoccupied with the care of this age. That's what it says. What am I talking about? I'm talking about just pure worldliness. You're more concerned with this world than you are with God's kingdom. And notice the phrase there, the deceitfulness of riches. I mean, if you don't think that the world is enticing, then you're, you're, you're truly, either you're not being sincere or you're deceiving yourself. Because the world is very enticing. Sometimes when I'm down at the coffee house, the paper, there won't be a lot to the newspaper that day and I've already done my devotion or reading, whatever I'm going to do, and I'm just sitting there for a couple minutes, finish my coffee, and I'll reach over my shoulder and grab one of those uh, real estate magazines. Flop it down in front of me and I start looking at some of these houses. The incredible houses that these people live in. I mean, we're not just talking big houses. Ken, you know what I'm talking about. You clean them. We're talking mansions. I mean, we're, you need a GPS so you don't get lost in the house. 
I mean, some of these houses, you know, 14 bedrooms, 20 bathrooms. It's like, go figure. I mean, what would you do? I mean, we could have the whole church come over and spend a week. We'd probably never see each other. <laughs> Amazing. You don't think there's times when I'm looking at that house, yeah, I could get used to that. That'd be nice. Sure. Why? Because it's enticing. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 says, They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, but the love of money, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And it doesn't just have to be houses, beloved. It could be maybe you're pining after a, a promotion at work or a new car or a bigger church, more people. Why? Because that would affirm my success as a pastor. How wrong is that? But you know what? We all go there. We all think of that sometimes. And it comes down to, are you willing to compromise in order to get what you want from the world? Because that's going to be fleeting. It's not going to last. Matthew says in chapter 6, no man can serve two masters. Either he's going to hate one and love the other or he'll, he'll hold on to one and despise the other. He can't serve God and money. 1 John 2.15 says, If any man loves the world, the, father, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't be a double-minded man. And we need to stand up, men and women, and, and make a decision when it's in regard to this. Are we going to chase after these worldly things, or are we going to make a decision that, you know what, I'm going to stand for Christ. And even though that's enticing, I'm going to ask God to give me everything I need to do what he wants me to do. I don't want to compromise. See, that's why true salvation occurs only when there's a willingness to deal with sin in one's life. I've never seen anybody say that says, sin, I don't have any sin, but I want to get saved. Why wouldn't they say that? Because there's no reason for them to get saved if they're not willing to acknowledge their own sin. That's why true salvation is the marvelous and gracious work of God. And today we get this confused. We have churches teaching, no, no, you go out and you know, it's your responsibility to lead people to Christ. It's your responsibility to make sure that they pray, quote, a sinner's prayer. Or raise their hand or walk an aisle or whatever. All that does, beloved, is produce false converts as far as I'm concerned. God is perfectly capable of saving those whom he's chosen before the foundation of the world any way he wants. But I'd rather see God do it in a marvelous, gracious way. There are people that say you don't have to do anything to be saved. All you've got to do is believe. That's all. Just believe. Just believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. That, that flies so much the opposite of what the Scripture says. Because that soil may look good, but it's impure. It has weeds in it. It's an example of someone trying to hold on to everything. He wants the word of God, but he wants everything else in the world at the same time. And just like weeds are 
indigenous to the soil in which we plant our gardens. Worldliness is indigenous to our own hearts. And when we introduce a new seed to that foreign, that's foreign to that soil, introducing the gospel to the heart, it has to be tilled, it has to be cared for, it has to be nurtured. Otherwise, it's not going to survive. The ground has only so much nourishment. And if the ground is busy with the nourishing all those weeds, it's not going to have anything left for that seed that's sown. See, there's nothing wrong with the sower. There's nothing wrong with the seed. There's not even anything wrong with the soil. It's the condition of the soil that becomes the problem. People who profess to be saved aren't saved if their hearts are still occupied with the things of the world. In that case, worldly things choke out the gospel. Am I saying you can't have nice things? No, I'm not saying that. You know me better than that. What I'm saying is, do those nice things have you? (laughs) The hearers so far leave us with a negative feeling. These are all people who are going to eventually resist. People who even appear to grow quickly. People who hold on to both the worldliness around them and God at the same time. There are those who come to church but never become committed. There's a person who may say that they're a Christian but they're not faithful in their marriage relationship. There's a person who lives his whole life for his own personal prestige and gain and money. See, those people allow the seed to germinate but eventually it gets choked out. And we've seen that. The Lord says, you know what? Expect that. Those are the kind of responses that you will have as you go out and sow your seed. What Jesus said here was all prophetic. He's talking about the church age. He's talking about the time we live in right now. You say, well, maybe, maybe he means those people lost their salvation. Are you kidding me? Jesus is saying those people were never saved, is what he's saying. The mark of salvation in this parable is that the seed, what? It bears fruit. In John 15, 2 and 6, it says that if you don't bear fruit, God cuts you from the vine, Christ, and sends you to hell. That's what the Bible says. A true believer will manifest fruit, just like an apple tree will grow apples. It's a natural thing. That's the mark of salvation. That takes us, in closing, to the last soil, the fruitful here in verse 23. It says, But he that receives a seed in good ground is he that hears the word and understands it, or receives it. Mark says, holds fast to it. Luke says, who also bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. See, there's a promise here for us. That's very productive soil. It's bearing 3,000%, 6,000%, 10,000% yield of that seed. That's a lot. The soil here is just like the rest of the soil, but it's good because of its preparation. 
There's no weeds. There's no rocks. There's no hard surface right underneath. And that's what this whole parable is teaching us. The Lord is telling his disciples and us, by the way, that there is good soil out there. Isn't that encouraging? What a wonderful promise. He's not saying every time you sow your soil, boy, it's just going to go right down the dumper. No, he says, you know what? There is good soil out there. That's why you have to be faithful to sow that seed. We've all met hard-hearted people. And sometimes it's easy to become discouraged by those kind of people. Sometimes we meet people who initially, boy, grab right a hold of the gospel, and boy, they seem like they're growing, and then, you know, three weeks later, they're off doing whatever they're doing again. That can become discouraging. Sometimes we invest our lives in people. Maybe six months, maybe a year, maybe two years, only to see them fall away. That becomes very discouraging. But we just have to be faithful and we have to keep sharing the gospel because the Lord promises us that there is good soil out there. And the ultimate mark of salvation is what? Fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Galatians tells us about the fruit of the Spirit. Over and over in the New Testament, we're told that when someone comes to Christ, there's fruit. Romans 1.13. Paul says, I purposed Come unto you that I might have some fruit among you also. Psalm 1 says that we're like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. Notice that those returns, 160 and 30, they weren't all the same. Some people have different returns for the seed that's sowed. But there is definitely a fruit, there's definitely a return. Ephesians 2.10 says that we're created onto good works. God already had ordained works for you to do as believers. I mean, sometimes, you know, someone comes to Christ and, and their life isn't just panning out. I mean, you know, there's an initial burst of life and then they just go back to their old ways. They're, they're drinking or sleeping around. They're doing all that stuff. And we say, well, they're just a new Christian. They'll learn. No. Because look at what it says. I mean, the average return on a crop was about seven and a half fold. He says, once this seed is fallen on good ground, what happens? It doesn't, he doesn't say, well, maybe you'll see a tenfold. No, he says 30-fold. In other words, you're going to see a change in somebody's life when they come to Christ. True believers, according to God's plan, produce fruit. If there's no fruit, then there's no belief. There's no life there. So first of all, the Lord is encouraging us as believers, go preach the gospel and realize that when you preach, you're going to encounter these different kinds of soil that have some been prepared, some haven't. You're going to have an enemy that's against you, that's going to do everything he can to oppose you as a sower of the seed of the gospel. And he also says here that there's going to be people who won't be able to bear the tribulation and the persecution and eventually they're, they're, they're not going to be a Christian. They're, they're, not, they're not going to follow through in their commitment with Christ. They'd rather be comfortable without any complications in life. They're not willing to make that sacrifice that's required to become a Christian. The flesh is the enemy 
to the gospel. Satan is an enemy to the gospel, and the cares of this age, worldliness, is an enemy of the gospel. If we know that, we already know that there's going to be opposition. Why aren't we more faithful in sowing the seed? Do you understand it's not up to the sower? At no point in this parable does he say, well, you know, the reason that it fell on this ground over here, the, the, the sower was stupid. He shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have done it that way. How many times have you gone out and you shared the gospel and you only walk away going, oh, you know, I just don't feel worthy to do this. I don't know enough about the Bible. Somebody might ask me a question. And we make up excuse after excuse after excuse why we can't take what we have, the word of God, and throw it. Can't do it. Requires some self-examination this morning. What kind of soil is in your heart? That's what Christ is posing here. I pray that it's good ground. And if you're hard ground, where the, the birds come and snatch it away, or it's trotted under feet, or it's rocky soil, or it's weedy soil, then you need to ask God to take his divine plow and begin to work. Because he'll do that. Secondly, we need to remember that it's not, up, it's not about the talent of the sower. You could have a little kid out there throwing seed around. You know what? You're going to see a harvest. It's not up to the talent of the sower. That should encourage us as believers. You know what? We need to be about the business of our Lord and sowing the gospel into the hearts of people as we run across them on a daily basis. Three quarters of them is not going to yield anything. We should already know that. But you know what? I'd do it all day just to see one <laughs> saved. It's not the talent of the sower, but the nature of the soil that matters. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, these pithy little stories really get to the heart of the matter, and they do it rather quickly. And Lord, we thank you that we can come to the point of self-examination. Honestly, in our own hearts, that we can see what kind of soil we are. Clearly. We know that all men are able to receive, but all the conditions aren't necessarily right. Father, if there's some here this morning who are hard-hearted, stiff-necked, I ask that you break up that soil, break up their heart. Plow that under. Some who are shallow, I pray that you would reach deep into their lives and get to those places, those hard places, those places of resistance, that you would break them up. Do whatever it takes, Lord. Maybe there's people here that feel the infiltration of weeds, the deceitfulness of riches, the worldliness that surrounds us every day the sins of life, all those things are kind of creeping in and taking hold. I pray that there would be true repentance and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, for us believers, I pray that we would take home the truth that it's not the talent of the sower, but it's its faithfulness. That you are faithful to do what God has told you to do in sowing the seed of the gospel without compromise. And we will see that return. That's a promise from the Lord. Anybody here is 
yet to put their faith and trust in Christ, cry out to Him. I pray, Lord, that they would know that they can do that just even in this moment. Lord, forgive me for my sins. Should be the cry of our hearts. Lord, help me to trust in Christ and Christ alone for my forgiveness. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Those are prayers that God will hear, that he will answer. As you're faithful to pursue him. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.